Father God, we thank you that you've given us your word and that we get the opportunity to study it together. We ask that you open it to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. So, of course, we're going through our Alpha series on prayer. Uh, this is our second week on petitionary prayer, on asking God for things. And uh, this is interesting to me because yesterday a number of people had a life-changing experience. Some of them were mothers of small children. Some of them were probably retirees. Some the habitually unemployed. And I don't know the exact number. Usually it's around 10 or so. Because the lotto had a $21 million super draw. And statistically, when these things happen, there's about 10 or so winners, the prize gets distributed a few ways. Some get more than others, but it's a life-changing event for those who win big. Now, there'll be hundreds, and hundreds of thousands of folks who buy these tickets to go into the pool, and of those hundreds and thousands, maybe half have some kind of personal faith. And, and as those colorful balls are being shot down the little chute and, uh, and determined which numbers they are, these people are all whispering, please God, let me win this time. And inevitably, there will be a number of interviews after the fact, after the draw, where a few of those, a few of those prayerful individuals tell the camera, it's just a miracle. They were going through such a tough time, and everything seemed to go from bad to worse, and then God answered their prayer with millions of dollars. So our question today is, are they right? Because we are talking about prayer, and specifically petitionary prayer. This is the kind of prayer that is most natural for us. It's us asking God for help, for blessing, for supply of things we need. We have a need, we petition God to fulfill that need. And often, instinctively, that's the entire substance of a prayer we'll pray. And then we feel guilty because it's all been about us and we'll tack on something at the end so we don't feel quite so self-conscious. You say, dear Lord, please let the auction get asking price or above for the house. Please stop the kids from fighting and don't let this toothache mean I need another filling. Amen. Oh, and feed the starving orphans. Amen. But a few things indicate a rich spiritual life particularly, and few things indicate a healthy spiritual life more than a healthy sense of reliance on prayer, a healthy sense of reliance on God through prayer. And there are a few redder flags about where a person's spiritual life is going than when they lose that habit of petitioning God in prayer. So we'll take some time thinking about what exactly we should be praying for, how we should expect petitionary prayer to work. But first, we'll step through this passage we're working in. My Bible uh, titles this section, Jesus Teaches on Prayer. I would like to suggest the alternative title, The Parable of That One Friend Who Never Plans for Anything and Always Does Stuff Like This and They Know Who They Are. So the parable of that one friend begins like this. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine is on a journey and has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up 
and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, is what the NIV says, impudence in the, uh, the ESV, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So first, let us acknowledge that this is hilarious. <laughs> We're talking about an ancient hospitality culture here, where it's an honor-shame-based culture, where being seen as good is more important, in fact, than being good. It's considered incredibly shameful to send your guests away hungry. It's incredibly shameful to send away uh, strangers hungry, let alone your friends who are visiting from a long distance away. If you do that, then you weren't thought of as a poor person who doesn't have food. You were thought of as a bad person who doesn't bless people who come to their house. And some cultures have a little of this left in them today. A boss of mine at an old job used to tell me what it was like growing up in Sydney with a, with a whole bunch of friends who were from uh, Greek origins. And every time he would visit their house, he'd hear, David, are you hungry? You want food? No thanks, Mr. Alexopoulos. Good, sit. <laughs> that kind of culture is what we're talking about here. And what makes it kind of worse to me is, in the story that Jesus is telling, this breadless guy couldn't possibly admit to his guest that he had nothing because that would be shameful in itself, which means he has to make an excuse to leave the room, maybe climb out the window, run down the street to his friend's house, get the bread, sneak back in, try and pass it off as if it was a perfectly normal experience. This is a classic comedy bit. This is, my boss is coming to dinner, oh no, the roast is burning. I've got to run down and try and make do with what I can get at the server. Now Jesus is not saying that God is like a friend who is already in bed, and you have to nag him into action. Let's be clear about that. This is what we call an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the small to the large. He's saying that if you ask a friend for bread, and that friend has every reason to stay in bed and not give it to you, he will still give it to you if you persist in asking. How much more can we rely on God then to give us this daily bread when we ask since God is so much better than a mortal friend who has needs. That's why he goes on to say in verse 9, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, does Jesus here literally mean Whoever asks for anything will receive that thing they ask for. I think we have to say, no, God's not a vending machine. He is a good father. But at risk of oversampling the lotto references, you've got to be in it to win it. It's the people who ask that receive. It's the ones who seek that find. And the door ain't going to open itself if you don't knock. God delights in receiving our petitions. He delights in us calling on him as a father. That's why Jesus goes on to say, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if asked for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now there's a bit of a cultural translation to do here as well, because honestly, I've met a few Australian dads, and this sounds exactly like the kind of thing that they would find very funny. 
But Jesus' point, nonetheless, is crystal clear. No evil father, no, no uh, sinful human being of a father, that is to say, all fathers, is going to punish their child for a reasonable request. Fathers are meant to provide for their children. And so God's children can come before him with the confidence of a child coming before their father asking for something to eat. So that's the principle of petitionary prayer, of petitioning God in prayer that Christ lays down for us here in this passage. It shows us a few straightforward things for a start. First, that God expects us to pray for our needs. That he expects us to have perhaps not quite shameless audacity, but certainly persistence in asking for what we need and how we petition him. And that we can expect our Father to have our good in mind and not to act against us when we come to him. So now that we've got this, we're ready to start picking at the edges of this promise about prayer that the Son of God has given us, just to see how it's stitched together and how it works. Because how does prayer work? Now, our earlier example of the, the prayerful lottery winner, can we say meaningfully that God answered the prayers of the winners but did not answer the prayers of the losers? Should, for example, the, uh, the Wallabies respond to their terrible performance by firing their coach or by firing their chaplain for failing to make them pray harder? Jesus' image here of this man harassed out of bed to give his friend bread in the night, it's an image about persistence and about God's faithfulness, but if we take that a bit too literally, we can draw the wrong lesson from it. If we think God is just kind of sitting around on a divine couch inactively until we pray, and then he gets up and starts doing things, then prayer very quickly stops making sense, and shortly after begin to disappoint us. God might seem to answer a prayer to get to work on time when the traffic is heavy, but then will not answer a prayer to heal a sick loved one. And then we're left asking why God would let this happen. Why would he get out of bed to clear traffic for us but not to save a life? God begins to seem arbitrary and weird and we can't understand him. So... And not to mention, for that matter, our justification for why God doesn't answer certain prayers starts becoming remarkably thin if we think of God this way. We might say that God won't answer your prayer to, uh, to win the lottery because he's, it's, it's too selfish of a prayer and you need to kind of mediate it a little bit. You might bargain with God and say, Lord, if you give me $10 million, I swear I will just pay off the house, I'll put 15% to super and give the rest to the church. Have you ever tried bargaining with God? Tried to get the sovereign creator of the universe to come back to the table by sweetening the deal for him? But that is the trick, isn't it? God is sovereign. He has all power and all knowledge. And any event that happens in this world happens because God creates the forces and the matter and the time in which these things happen. God is always active. He knows what we need. He knows what he's going to provide. He knows the times that he will be teaching us about relying on him spiritually instead of providing for us materially. And he knows the time that he will call each of us home. 
So why does Jesus encourage us to pray to the Father if he is so completely sovereign, if he knows what we need and he intends to do it anyway? How does prayer actually work if it works at all? Well, I think there's two things to regard here. I call them submission and relativity. Submission and relativity, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Submission first, because petitioning to God, to asking God for things, is how we actively set ourselves in this posture of submission to God. We start the day asking God for the things we need and placing ourselves under his will. God is not doing a service for us. We are living for him. We do it when circumstances are out of control because we recognize that they are in God's control. And as the Father's children, we trust him to be good with his care of us. Even if going forth, we're not immediately sure how things will work out. We trust him to be working for the good. And now we would very much like these things to go well, and we would like to receive our daily bread, if you will. But ultimately, we submit to God, who is in control of all things and works for the good. So... For example, in a football league of however many teams, God does not decide the outcome of the season based on the team that prays the hardest. Otherwise, every sporting champion would be also a legendary saint. All of the Olympic teams would go into monastic seclusion before the games every four years. But in my experience and observation, God tends to decide the outcome of sporting events based on the players he has given the most talent, the duty with which they have trained for the events, and how fiercely they play the game themselves. But since God is the only one who knows how to measure these things, who understands these things, who can see this from kind of the top down, and since we would like to be God-honoring if we are losing as well as when we are winning, we encourage our athletes to pray, and we pray for them as well. It's this posture of submission to God's will, to our God who is sovereign, in the times that seem to us to be terribly uncertain. And second, after submission here, we've got what I've called relativity. Now, the term relativity popped up when Einstein made his theory of relativity back in 1905. Einstein was talking about physics, but it's kind of found its way into culture in all places, and it's a useful way of looking at a lot of things. Relativity is this idea that Things in the universe interact with each other based on their relationship to each other. So if one car is driving 100 k's an hour to the east, and another car is driving at 100 k's an hour to the west, then they're both driving 100 k's an hour relative to the world. But relative to each other, they're going 200 k's an hour. And so they'd better be in their own lanes when they cross paths. Relative to each other, they're going twice as fast. Now, if I'm driving, for example, 100 kilometers an hour toward a tree, someone sitting in that tree will see a white Mitsubishi Outlander rocketing towards it at a dangerous speed. But relative to me, I'm just sitting comfortably in my driver's chair when out of nowhere, a tree going 100 kilometers an hour fires out at me. And relative to the sun, to an object in space, it barely matters at all what speed the tree or the car is going because we're all whipping around the sun at 108,000 kilometers per hour. All of these things are true. 
but I can only experience the world and the events in it relative to me. I can't comprehend what it means to be moving at 108,000 kilometers an hour. That is gibberish to me. I don't know what that is supposed to feel like or how it's supposed to affect me. It's completely true, and my life depends on maintaining that speed. But that's all under God's sovereignty in a way that I can't begin to access. But I do see the tree, and I do understand that the tree and I are about to collide. And when that's about to happen, I don't pray to God, Lord, please, I hope that your will will adjust my speed and position relative to the sun ever so slightly so that this tree and I can continue orbiting the sun without our vectors crossing. I pray to God, don't let me die like this. Because relative to me, in that moment, the world is about to end. And now God himself is the only one who knows the appointed time for my death. One day it will happen, perhaps in a single car accident at 100 k's an hour. But if that's what the sovereign God of the universe has appointed for me, he's not going to change his mind based on how nicely I ask him. But that's never really been the point of prayer. The point is that if God spares me from that accident, then I'd be right to be tremendously grateful to him. The fact that the physics might dictate that the car was always going to swerve around the tree doesn't really matter because I do not experience my life as a tree or as a car. I only experience my life from behind these eyes. And they get to keep blinking because God has chosen to give me life. Does that make sense at all? God's sovereign will for the world, for everything he created, is is fixed because he has no real opposition to what he's planned. There are no surprises for God that he has to adapt to and change his plan to fit. There is no one who could stop him from accomplishing his will. He doesn't have to change his plans for any reason, and there's no reason for him to change his plans. God does not operate relative to things in the world. He is the absolute, the only absolute. He's never relatively closer or further away to a place because he is everywhere. He is never relatively strong or weak to a task because he is all-powerful. But you and I are not absolute. We don't know what it means to be absolute. We live our lives in which the only absolute factor is God himself. And God has ordained that we should live our small lives, our relative lives, in a world full of uncertainty, taking our fears and our needs always to him, the absolute one. And petition and and prayer like this, taking our small, temporary, physical needs in our uncertainty before a God who has no needs, who is certain of all things. Prayer is the point where the absolute meets the relative in our lives. So let's go back to our analogy about the lotto winners then. And I'm using the lotto winner idea here pretty frequently, so let me be clear in saying that I'm not endorsing golden casket as a a method uh, to either acquire wealth or to pursue God's will. 
Okay? I do not think that it is inherently sinful to buy a lotto ticket. I do think it is a foolish way to spend the money that God has given you. But we asked the question earlier, when this mother of four wins her share of the money, say $6 million, and tears are streaming down her cheeks, and she says that she thanks God for answering her prayers, is she right? Did God cause her to win this money? And I think the answer has to be yes, simply because if God's not responsible, I can't imagine who is. No one else gets to decide how things play out in this world. If we really believe that God is absolutely sovereign in the world, he's not surprised by a lot of results. He's not ignorant of the fact that people are praying for them to turn out a particular way. Now, the father doesn't hear her prayer and then the other ticket holder's prayers and then think about it for a while and decide who needs it the most and then rig the draw in her favor. He's always been behind the elements that we call luck and chance throughout our lives. He's working in the lives of the winners and the losers alike. So prayer does work in that way. But it's not all there is to talk about. This isn't to say... We should all go out and buy lottery tickets. Because there's more to say here. Studies have shown, for example, that winning the lottery isn't always a blessing from God. He might not be doing you a favor if he does give that to you. People who are happy before they win tend to become more happy. But people who start miserable tend to become more miserable with the more money. There's an initial high, and then friends and family start popping out of the woodwork, suddenly more interested in you than they ever have been. And suddenly all these relationships that used to be about love and struggle together in difficult circumstance are now about your money. And the people who are good with money tend to do well with the extra money. The people who are bad with money tend to be bad with a lot of extra money. And let's be honest, it's not usually the people who are good with money who buy a $16 quick pick every two days. So God may answer a prayer like that, but he may use it to teach a different lesson about what really matters in life. He may not answer a prayer like that, but may in fact be sparing us a world of disappointment and embarrassment and family dysfunction. So what should we really be asking for? What can we expect God to provide for us? What does he offer? What should we bring to God in petition? And the simple answer is to say everything, but... That's not particularly helpful if we don't unpack it. Ultimately, we don't petition God for what we know is secure and safe and we're sure of. It's about our uncertainty in our lives. Those are the things that we bring before our Lord. And about what I call this posture of submission to God in all things. For the things that God has granted us and we're sure of, those things we're thankful for. We pray thanks for and that's a way of adoring God, of praising him for how good he is. And there's a sort of a natural progression of things we pray for becoming things we praise God for. So when I climb into my car to drive somewhere, I don't usually stop to pray that he will get me there safely. Now I used to, back when I was still learning to drive and that idea didn't seem particularly certain to me. And driving was a point of anxiety for me at the time. And you better believe I still pray for safety if I'm driving through really thick rain and I can barely see the lights of the guy in front of me. Or if I'm really tired but I'm only three streets away from home, 
And if I can just get there in time, I can crawl into bed and pass out. These are times I do bring my safety in driving before God in prayer. But now, for the most part, I just take the time every now and then to thank God that I have a car, that I have the ability to drive, and that he's given me that freedom to go where I like. Similarly, I'm sure a surgeon on her first day of the job will pray really hard for God to help her through this appendectomy without losing any forceps inside the patient. But after a couple of years of appendectomies and a growing confidence, I imagine she thanks God for the skills that, and the opportunity that she has to do this work and only asks that he be with her during the day's procedures more generally. Petition is our relative experience of anxiety and uncertainty, meeting God's absolute power and providence and faithfulness. It's what we are anxious about, meeting God's providence and faithfulness. So it's a natural cycle for prayers to begin as petitions, and then as we grow in confidence, as God proves to us yet again that he will provide and look after us, and that even those times that seem dark, he is teaching us and growing us. As we come to peace with the fact that our submission before God is right because he is faithful, those things become just more reasons to be thankful, to adore him and to praise him. More reasons to praise God for how he cares for us. So we thank God for the things he has given us and for the assurance that we have in him about his faithfulness. That's easy. So what do we actually petition him for specifically? I'd start with the things that cause you the most anxiety, what is weighing on your heart. These are the things that you worry about most and the things that you need to bring in petition to God. It's good, of course, to remember that God is our good father and not a vending machine. And when we bring our wants to him, he may in fact choose just to supply our needs, perhaps a need we didn't recognize instead. Now, I'll admit, for example, that several years ago, I was one of those who might have prayed that God would let me win money from a competition. But what I actually really wanted and needed was less financial anxiety. Now I just thank God for the way that he does provide for me and ask that he keeps teaching me to be better and better with the money he has given me. I used to pray that God would give me the job that I wanted. Now I just pray that he puts me where he wants me and that I have interesting stories to tell afterwards. There's a, a natural maturity that comes with prayer over time. We become accustomed to adopting that posture of submission before God. We become more confident in the way that God supplies us and comfortable seeing challenges when it doesn't seem like God supplies us as in fact a time he is growing us and improving our character. What we used to pray for becomes something we are thankful for, and the things that we ask for in petition start to become more simple, more open. And God then opens up our heart to pray in a different way again, what we call intercession, intercessory. Prayer for others, prayer for the world, prayer for the church. It's a bigger scope of prayer, and we'll talk about intercession next week. But for now, it's not selfish to petition God, to ask God for those things we are anxious about, even if they only work for our life. About the things that we need, about the things that maybe aren't necessary, but we'd kind of like. God's a good father. He gives us what we need. And sometimes he chooses to give us even those things we don't need, but kind of like. 
But he is always working out his will in the world and in our lives. And if we make a discipline of aligning ourselves with his will, with wanting what he wants for us, then the sovereign creator of the universe will faithfully lead us and grow us and answer us and care for us. I'm going to pray, but after I finish my prayer, I think we should wrap up with a round of the Lord's Prayer. I invite you to join in um, with whatever slight variation on that uh, you happen to know. I have the V's and thou's locked up in my head, so don't be surprised if I sound a little bit Catholic for a second. It doesn't stick. But I'm going to pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness and for the opportunity you give us to join with you in the unfolding of your plan. We ask you now to help us submit to your will, to seek it always in how we pray and how we live. Also, Lord, we ask that you light up in our hearts those fears and those uncertainties that we haven't given up to you yet, that plague us, but we cling to. Lord, we ask you help us to take those and lay them down at the foot of the cross. Father, and we thank you for your Son, who died upon that cross and rose again for our sake. We thank you that forgiven by that sacrifice to wash away our sins, we are free now to reach up from the smallness of our lives and touch the absolute majesty of your will, Father. And finally, Lord, we pray for those who don't know you. And we ask that they first come to know you, the provider, and then the freedom of living forgiven in your providence. We ask these things in your Son's name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. Amen. Thanks, Brendan. Um, please stand as we sing our final song.